Hi, and welcome to episode 156 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And this week, we've got a very special guest who has been a journalist, an editor, written lots of non-fiction books, and has just published... Uh, his debut fiction novel. Yeah, uh, very exciting. We're chatting with Mr. Stig Abel, who, uh, as Margot says, has kind of worked at the Press Complaints Commission. He was a director there for a while. He was editor at The Sun. He was on ILBC Radio. He was editor of The Times Literary Supplement. Now he's a Times Radio Breakfast Show host. I mean, it's pretty incredible back catalogue um, of roles he's had. And, and he's had a couple of factual books out already um, and as Marco says is, this is his very first fiction book crime fiction book Death Under a Little Sky yeah and as we as we'll hear in the interview he's you know he's a real you know he's loved reading books all his life he's reviewed books he obviously really knows crime yeah. fiction especially mm-hmm. um, and it was a really fascinating chat talking to him about his love of books his love of writing and you know how he fits it in because being a breakfast radio presenter he's getting up at 3 a.m he's then coming back he's got young kids and all this sort of stuff so he sort of talks about squeezing writing in when you can and and sort of getting that momentum going and that's how you how you keep going with it so it's a really fascinating chat so we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest but for now on with the podcast the blank page To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember... Every story starts with page one. 
did you always want to be a writer? Because obviously you've had quite a varied career. I think I probably did always want to be a writer at some level, but I didn't necessarily think it was a sort of thing to end up doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, when I left university, I reviewed a lot of books. I was a book reviewer for sort of 10 years. And so, so I mean, I've always been, I've always loved books from the very early age. Books have been really, really, really important to me. So I've always seen books as really central to my life. And I did like, and I really enjoyed reviewing them. Mm-hmm. And I, if someone had put a gun to my head and said, would you like to be a writer? I'd have definitely said yes, but I'm not sure I necessarily would have thought I could have done it. So it wasn't something that I thought was a, a massive career option. It just felt something that I, w- I would have loved to have done. And it's turned out that I ended up doing it. But even five years ago, it didn't necessarily feel, particularly in fiction, like a, a realistic yeah. opportunity. I mean, is it something though that, because obviously you studied English at uni, but did was writing something that you did at all? Were you writing short stories or anything like that or not really it was it was more the sort of non-fiction reviewing side of things that you were doing i did i did a lot of non-fiction reviewing stuff but i did used to write stuff for my wife um particularly in the early stages of our relationship as a kind of way of uh it's not i don't want to say courting because i sound like some sort of regency buck <laughs> but it, uh, uh, but, it, but in the early stages i used to send her short stories of thinly veiled uh, characters based on me and her. And uh, I also sent her uh, stories of, of a, with a content that I would be very uh, sad if they ever became public as well. <laughs> uh, so I, and, and I did write a novel uh, kind of uh, in my 20s, which, again, I wouldn't be thrilled if anyone... I don't even know where it is. It's probably on an old computer somewhere. So I, I, I had written... I'd written a sort of serial killer novel and I'd written quite a few sort of stories, but really just for the amusement of my wife. Um, and then I'd sort of left it there. And, and obviously, you've, 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 as I said at the start, you've had a variety of jobs. You were a newspaper editor, you did the book reviews. Um, you now obviously present a show on, on Times Radio. But um, what was it that made you think, right, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to, you know, give this a serious go at, at writing? So the cliche answer a bit is coronavirus but only in, because i was working through covid so i look i was involved in launching times radio which launched in um it was june of the first lockdown right. so right okay. in the heart of coronavirus yeah. so it wasn't as if i had one of those covid things where i was stuck at home for yeah. eight hours looking for things to do so i wasn't really that part of it that i didn't have a lot of time on my hands and suddenly i wanted to do it uh, i guess it was always been like like lurking there, and mm-hmm. I and I it, so in some ways it was back to to writing for my wife because I used to whenever I had a couple of hours I'd write a you know few hundred words fifteen hundred words and I'd send it to her, uh, and then it just built from there. And you know, and you probably know both know this. Once you've kind of written ten thousand words, twelve thousand words, fifteen thousand words, it starts to feel like maybe that's a thing. Yeah. Uh, and with the with Death Under a Little Sky, I sort of got to the point where it's fifteen thousand words. I thought, well, maybe actually this is a novel, and you know, maybe it's. It, and, and so then I just thought, oh, I'm going to write it. I, I didn't have even think about publishing it really. I I had a deal to write a nonfiction book, which I've still not done yet. Uh, the idea, so I so I I wrote the whole thing, and uh, then I've I've got a, a literary agent for my nonfiction stuff, and I, I sent it to her and said, well, I've written this thing. 
it's okay. I've already done it. And I really loved, I genuinely loved doing it. And it was mm. such a pleasure to do. So if it comes to nothing, I don't really care very much. And she didn't want to read it because she didn't want to turn around and say it was rubbish. Her words exactly to my face. Uh, and then she did. Then she did read it. And then um, it got to HarperCollins and they liked it and they wanted another one. So it kind of went from there. But the, the motivation to write it was really just for for the pleasure of writing it, I think. Mm-hmm. But I mean, obviously, that that wasn't your first actual book that you'd ever written because you've written a couple of factual books previously. And I wondered... Did, was that kind of a more obvious book for you to write the factual books? Were they more kind of obvious route for you to go into the book writing world based on your career? Yeah, definitely. And actually, again, I wouldn't have done it probably, but uh, an editor at uh, John Murray, who I didn't know, came to see me. And I, I'd written some stuff for the TLS. And like I said, I've written quite a lot of stuff over the years in mm-hmm. newspapers. And he said to me... Um, would you ever consider writing a book? And I had this idea, and generally a lot of what I'd done, even at the TLS, was this idea of explainers, trying to understand relatively complicated things and, and explaining them. And so the idea of the first book, really, How Britain Really Works, was just this gigantic explainer of all the different institutions in Britain. And so, it, like you say, it's a very clear link between my job, which was kind of either being on the radio, talking about stuff, or editing a magazine like the TLS, which explained things to being a sort of book that was just this giant explainer. It was a very straightforward concept, really. And so that was a, in, in that sense, it seemed like quite an easy, not an easy, but a, a more simple method of, of getting into books. But but did that experience of, you know, all of your writing experience, I guess, um, before you, you sat down and started writing Death Under a Little Sky, did that assist in in writing the fiction book in any way do you, is it even just having the discipline to to write and and that sort of thing does that help you start that journey i think it does and I, and I really do believe i believe this that actually a lot of writing to me is just right is just doing it yeah like you can sit around thinking about it an awful lot actually i find the fact of just sitting and writing a i if it's done right in your mind is a great pleasure but b it's momentum thing um, and I think my my fiction publishers, HarperCollins, now think it very funny because I I've delivered two books, you know, well within the time allotted for the <laughs> second one. Because ultimately, I just want to do it. And like, yeah. if they said to me tomorrow, I'm not publishing this anymore, I'd probably still write another one. Yeah. Um, because it, to me, it's about exactly that. It's momentum. It's rhythm. This is true of nonfiction. Nonfiction is harder because you've got to do the research. Yeah. So you've got to do a body of work and then the body of work. Whereas fiction, at least for me, is, is a certain amount of plotting and planning, but not that much. I like quite a, a simple skeleton of where it might go. And then again, trust this notion of just doing it uh, and actually sort of writing by continually doing to me is is the way I do it. And actually, that's true of nonfiction as a fiction. It's slightly more straightforward in fiction because there's there's less of a of the scaffolding of research to, to build up first. I mean, I, I think that is like one of the one of the secret it's it seems like an obvious secret but it is built getting into habit with writing is is so important because if you just wait for the day that you fancy doing it then then you'll never finish anything i suspect but and also i think that because virtually no one is a professional writer particularly at the beginning can mm-hmm. earn enough money doing it yeah you know i've always had to juggle it with with full-time jobs effectively and you know i wrote death under little sky launching a radio station and then doing a breakfast show so i get up at three in the morning Mm-hmm. Uh, get to work at four, work, go on the radio 
six till ten, bit of work after, and then I sort of on a train home at around lunchtime. And even something as simple as I'm every time I'm on a train for 40 minutes, I'm gonna work. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna put classical music in my headphones, have my laptop in front of me, and I'm just gonna write. And then when I get home, do some exercise and then probably do another hour's writing. It's not that much. I mean, that's the other thing I find that, I don't know if all the people you spoke to, if you've got other jobs to do and life and family and kids and all of that, there aren't that many hours in the day you can write. Mm -hmm. So you've got to work out where they are and say, I've probably only got two hours to write today. Mm -hmm. And therefore I better write in those two hours because if I miss them, they're not coming back to me. Yeah, I think I think that's right. You've got to take it. And that in itself is a skill as well to learn that you don't sit down and spend an hour sort of warming up to then start <laughs> writing. If you've got limited time, then you just have to grab that time when it's available, I suspect. Um, and and you, you sort of alluded to it there that you, you, you plan a little bit, but it doesn't sound like you're a, a sort of 10 spreadsheets and all of that sort of thing when you're planning your books. No, and um, funnily enough, so we're talking now and the first one is about to come out, but I've just finished the first draft of the third one. Um, uh, and I'm probably getting slightly more sophisticated as I go along. But, you know, there's some authors, James Elroy writes a 400 page outline and then a 400 page novel, which is sort of fleshing out of the, the outline, yeah. which is and at his best. You can see why he does that, because it's sort of you know when he's doing the, the genius that is American tabloid or Cold 6000, you can imagine how much Try effort to pull everything in. together. Yeah, 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 just incredible. Yeah. Um, but Lee Child, he just sits down on the same day every year, has created Jack Reacher, the concept of a road and eating coffee, drinking coffee and eating hamburgers and kicking the crap out of people. <laughs> uh, and then off he goes. And it's obviously much more sophisticated than that. But it, my understanding of talking to him is he really just follows his nose on it and lets it sort of pursue it where it may. Um, and I'm probably between those two things. I think particularly with crime stuff, you've got to plan a bit so you can work out where people are and where you're going to get mm. to and who did it and stuff like that. I know Agatha Christie, I think she didn't always know who did it until the end. I think she sort of got the pieces in place and then worked out who was the least likely. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, and then got, got that person to do it. Um, so I, I'm probably a certain amount of making sure I have the beginning and the end who did it. But beyond that, just trusting the process of writing all the time. And then actually in my little bag where I keep my computer, I've got loads and loads of um, scraps of paper where either I've just written down, oh, this should happen yeah. next, or here are the four things that need to happen next. And Because I have a drive to work um, at three o'clock in the morning where I sort of sit in the back of a car at three in the morning, which is miserable. It's as miserable as it sounds. It's, 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 it's awful. Uh, and in COVID, of course, it was that in a mask, which was really awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I, so sometimes there, just to, I sort of put my hood up and sort of tie it up until you can't really see me. And I close my eyes and I quite often do sort of plot stuff in my head there, hmm. uh, just thinking ahead. And then I might get to work and write down two sentences like, he needs to get to there or it would make sense if he finds her doing that. And I find that little bits of plot being uncorked that way works just by constantly thinking about it and then when you get a bit of clarity sort of scrolling it down mm -hmm. 
And, and and how many drafts do you tend to do? Are you quite a clean writer? Is your first draft quite close to the finished product or do you go through quite a lot of drafts? I'm not a brilliant editor of myself, I don't think. Um, so uh, I think it's relatively clean. I do a, a first draft and then a cleaned up version of the first draft. And then that's 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 it really. Although my second one, which is now at the the sequel to Death Under a Little Sky, uh, I handed it in again, really having done it for pleasure and and just just got ahead and got down and did it. And I had this slight, slightly awkward meeting with uh, the editors of Harper Collins, and they said, "Look, we really like the book. We like the first half, and we like the second half." but we don't think those two books have anything to do with each other. <laughs> uh, and the second half, and so Death and the Little Sky is, is quite a sprawling, um, rural, it's sort of the, one of the main characters really in the book is Little Sky, this sort of imaginary place which has got beautiful land. And so the idea of, this is where it came out of coronavirus, the idea of space and isolation and all that stuff which came from it. Um, and the second book ended becoming a bit of a country house mystery. And the editors said to me, we like it, but we don't think you should be doing that for the second book. The yeah. first half, before you get to this country house, we really like. And the second, house would be, the second half would be a perfectly good country house mystery, but we don't have a very good idea. So what I did with that one was I more or less tied the first 40,000 words and I took the second 40,000 words and, and deleted them. Deleted them uh, or just yeah. kept them in a different file? Well, I've, I've put them in another file. I, I've, I've effectively deleted them, I think, okay. really. Uh, and then started the second, reshaped the second half completely. So that was an example of the, 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 the that was eventually, therefore, the third draft of this being mm. drastically different because someone had taken a look at it and said, you need to change the shape of it. Was it quite hard to hear that? You know, you have to have quite a thick skin for these kind of... Do you know what? I, I've always believed that you should let experts... You should listen to experts. Uh-huh. Like they, they they do that job for a reason, and so I probably harumphed a bit. I don't know how you'd have felt about it. I kind of harumphed a bit <laughs> in my in my mind, and I half there's a little tiny part of my brain that had already thought, "Have I sent this in the wrong place?" I don't know if you agree with this, but you know, particularly with with crime books, there's a danger of getting yourself into a cul-de-sac where you make several decisions, and that's the only place you can get yeah. to. Yeah, and yeah, maybe that yeah. place isn't the right place. And there was probably a little kind of hint in the back of my mind, oh, have I taken that to the wrong place? So when they said it, I kind of knew they were right. And I also thought you should always trust people who know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And generally, they're, they're, they're such a supportive, clever bunch of people. I just thought they they, they clearly know. And and so I, I, I sort of stumped about... For a, for a day, and then I thought, yeah, you're right. I better just, I better just. I'm, I'm sure it is, in fact, Lee Child that said that when he gets editor's notes, if there's like, you know, say, take a number of twenty of them, he'll look at them all and say they're all rubbish the first time, and then leave it for an hour, and then go, okay, well, maybe that's got a good point, and then yeah. a few hours later, okay, those five as well, and then within a couple of days, all of them have been accepted. But it yeah. takes it takes that time as a writer to sort of accept that feedback, I think. And, and because there's no obvious right answer, it's not like you can really appeal to anything. Yeah, and you're dealing with true, yeah. And you're dealing with hypotheticals, because you've got, you know, you don't know what an audience would make of it. They're never yeah. going to see that version of the book. And so it's not like you can really rely on anything empirical. You've just got to say... And like I said, I probably knew. And that's the nervousness about it, isn't it? That even if you've got a book accepted, 
it's still do they really like it what, mm. what what will they come back you know when that first bunch of things come back i, I remember with death in the little sky they were totally right about this but i deliberately written it um from the, the the from jake jackson who's the central character's point of view so there's a load of stuff the whole thing's from his you know the the narrator effectively sitting over his shoulder sort of free and direct style it's, re- it's really jake's perspective but then some of the book is a bit about the male gaze and how that looks at other people. So I'd written a couple of things where the point of view was just reversed and someone was looking at him. Mm-hmm. And I'd done that deliberately. And then it get and then I remember one of the editors came back to me and was like, I, why you just changed the point of view there? And I was like, yeah, I'm doing it deliberately. <laughs> and, and, and they were so nice about it. And they were like, well, let's have a think about it. Maybe, you know, I'm just thinking it's weird. Maybe don't do that. And I'm doing a thing about the male gaze. And she thought, I understand that, but have a think about it. And then by the time we got to, um, you know, the, the second yeah. or third exchange, I was like, yeah, you're right. I'll get rid of it. <laughs> and, so I, and so I did. And and what was your path for, for having an agent? You know, because, I mean, am I right in saying, is it the same agent you have for your fiction books as you have for your factual books? Or or did you yeah. start from scratch? No, same same person. So uh, this is why I'm a bit lucky, I, I, I think. So I met... I've got this amazing agent, and I think the quality of an agent is a is a is a you're either lucky or not lucky. I, this agent is called uh, Kath Summerhays, and she's a real proper agent. I mean, she does m- many many authors bigger than me. But I'd met her really through the TLS stuff, and just a bit being in the literary world. I mm. I met someone who knew her, and they'd said to me, um, "Oh, you should meet Kath," and said to Kath, "Oh, he may write a book one day. Why don't you meet him?" And so. That was very lucky. That was the kind of function of me being in that world um, without ever really writing a book. And so she'd said to me, uh, oh, if you ever do that, I'll 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 get involved. And so she was my agent for the first two books. And like I said, I then said to this third, this fiction book and she was a bit like, oh, God, <laughs> I really have to turn around and say this is this is awful. Uh but then she then liked it enough to, to get it to get the, the deal done with HarperCollins. So. Uh, it was the same one and I lucked into her and I wonder you know how do you meet agents it's difficult and it's you know so much of this is random I think one of the the hardest things whenever you're doing uh, writing I think writing books is how many variables are beyond your control yeah you can write a book and I and there's no way again this is all hypothetical there's no way actually doing a controlled experiment but I reckon if you've got 50 books you could plot 50 different routes to success or failure for each of them absolutely and and there's no real way of controlling that. And so the nature of your agent, who they happen to speak to, whether they love it, you know, what do Waterstones think of your book? What does a seller in Waterstones think of your mm-hmm. book? Uh, you know, a million different things. What's just been published? What's about to be published? What fits in with a magazine editor's view of the world? You know, there's so much randomness in all of this, which is why it's so kind of heartbreaking when you when you worry about the prospects for your book. You can't really control very much of it. And I lucked into her. Uh, she's she's she, she's a brilliant, brilliant agent. Yeah, no, I mean, that's so right. So many of our guests we've talked to, you know, you've obviously got to get the words down, get something that you're happy with on paper. But at the end of the day, there is so many things like timing. Is this the right book, the type of book that that particular agent is looking for at that time and all of that sort of thing? It is. It, everything needs to come together for it all for it all to work out, I think. Um, yeah. But obviously, um, Death Under Little Sky is a crime book. I think I read that when you were growing up talking about, uh, you, you mentioned earlier how, how much you loved books before, you were a big Sherlock Holmes and, and Poirot fan. Is is that 
has crime always been your your genre, your go to genre? Yeah, and I think it's because I grew up in. So I'm I'm forty two, um, very nearly forty three. So I was born in nineteen eighty, and so I'm just at the edge of being a millennial. I'm not quite a millennial. I'm not quite the previous generation. But that generation, my generation, is the one which I didn't get a mobile phone till I was twenty. I didn't get an email address till I went to university in 1998. I had a pager. <laughs> 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 that's, that's, uh, and so I, I was of a generation where there's no Amazon. Um, there weren't books were expensive. You couldn't really get cheap books there. I mean, I, I'm from a town called Loughborough. I don't remember there being a particularly vibrant bookstore, particularly vibrant secondhand books. There were a few charity shops, but not much. So you read what was in your parents' house. Mm-hmm. So I, I read 70s thrillers. That was the sort of staple for me. Um, and so that included crime fiction, but also John le Carré, Len Dayton, stuff like that. So, but genre fiction. Yeah. And, I, and I have this great joy always in well-written genre fiction, which I think is the, sort of in many ways the acme of, of the reading experience. When you combine <laughs> someone who can write well with someone who wants to tell a story without getting diverted by their sense of literariness i kind of think is the perfect the perfect combination and so i grew up on on thrillers really and then sherlock holmes and agatha christie and um and crime books and and you know it's, the crime genre is so capacious you know it sort of splits at the beginning you know, in britain you get dorothy says and marjorie allingham and they're sort of very female more sedate slightly more cerebral stuff and then in america it goes the other way it goes dashiell hammett and yeah. raymond chandler uh, and the hard-boiled stuff, and I loved all of it. And I, I, I loved, you know, Sherlock Holmes. I think it's amazing that almost the first person who came up with the genre probably wrote the best examples of it, yeah. even yeah. 150 That's years true. later. That's a good point. Yeah, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Conan Doyle basically invented and perfected the thing <laughs> in one go, which I'm not sure has ever really happened uh, elsewhere. Um, but what he also did is he just allowed this great generous concept of what what it might be and because there's it's almost endless where that can go uh the different permutations are it's a very generous one and now i um you know i've said somewhere else that um i'm I'm like you know in rats in london you're never more than six feet away from a rat so i'm never more than six feet away from a crime book so there was always one in my bag there's always one in my bathroom there's always one by the side of my bed Uh, i'm doing this interview in in my living room and you can see this this big bank of books behind me you know, half of them will be will be um, detective novels. You know, from from you know from all parts of the world, from um, uh, um, different perspectives and all that, but all sort of joined together. So yeah, I think it started with thrillers generally, the concept of the the sort of seventies thriller, and then it became more detective crime books that, that followed on from that. And I think I read in an interview with you that you you've set your story. In modern day but as you just mentioned there you know modern technology has come on a lot it's it's not just kind of kind of pagers now it's everyone's got phones there's internet there's gps you know how do you get past that problem that a lot of older fiction just yeah. won't work anymore because it would be so easy yeah. to, to find someone and look I, I've, I've said a bit glibly that you know the mobile phone can ruin ruin crime fiction of course <laughs> it doesn't there are brilliant writers who, who, who know how to handle it properly um part of me just hates I'm a sort of Luddite. And so part of me is sick to death of my phone, sick to death of my kids on their phones. Uh, and so a little bit of a protest about that. But I do like the idea of um, that that genre of fiction, which is really until, what, 2000, where 
it is people meeting face to face. It is very much a, um, I think the advent of technology does change fundamentally the pace and the direction of crime fiction. So the conceit really in Little Skies, um, Jake, the detective, he he has a difficult marriage. uh, They sort of agree to split up. He inherits this house in the middle of an unnamed county in, in England or Britain, which doesn't exist. There's no one place I've modelled it on. But the concept really is, it, this does ha- definitely happen. You can go into the countryside in, in this country and there is no internet service yeah. at all. And there is no phone service, there's no TV. So he basically has become moored away from the modern world. And that's quite good for him because he brings a lot of baggage from the city life, from the, the cop life and from his previous marriage. And so that, that kind of thematically works. But also it just means it's him in this beautiful area, meeting people face to face. He has a relationship with a with a woman where they, where they end up communicating by hanging um, bits of cloth on a tree when they want to speak to each other, which is about as far as you can get from WhatsApp. So I was trying to think, what's the opposite of WhatsApp and Snapchat? And it's it's hanging a cloth on a tree. And so we have, uh, we have this detective. And actually, he then, and I think what happened over the course of the series, because there's at least four in the series now, there are moments where he get he comes into contact with the state which has technology still mm-hmm. and i think there's still an aspect of technology i mean there's a, there's a character in in the first book called alethea who is this um police support worker who's sort of is brilliant with computers she actually becomes more prominent in in the next two books so there are moments where she sort of is there to help him and he can go and see her and she's got a um, a sort of phalanx of computer screens, but generally speaking, I can take him away from that as well and plop him back in his uh, farmhouse with his sauna in his lake, away from uh, away from all of those distractions. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is interesting. I think we spoke to uh, Louise Candless recently about this as well. This this problem of technology and mm-hmm. how many crime books are now sort of set in either you know in the country house or in the highlands of Scotland or something like that that sort of takes the takes the modern technology out of the equation and allows authors to explore those I guess more traditional types of, of crime stories that there are. Uh, but but as you say, there are also some really brilliant, you know, modern crime novels set in cities where the technology is all there and and authors come up with a different solution to, to Yeah, exactly. And actually you can get brilliant, you know, you can get brilliant stuff. Because where they actually they're very clever and they use technology to, yeah. to to bring surprises. So it's not that I think it's impossible, but I think also it just happened to coincide with this thing that I was interested in generally. And, you know, I work on a news program, so I'm very conscious of, I suppose, stories about the way the world is going and this idea of the Great Resignation, the idea of people moving out of cities, the idea of people so frustrated with technology that they they're going back to old mobile phones mm-hmm. that don't have the internet. There's definitely something there that I think to me is philosophically interesting. The idea of of giving up and walking away and not being constantly glued to a a screen, which is brilliant and the whole world is opened up, but also is potentially pernicious. This idea that for our children, my children, uh, you know, 14, 11 and four, they can never close the door on the world because the world is always there. Mm -hmm. And what I've, one of the fantasies, I suppose, of death under little sky is what would happen if you could close the door on the world? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and, um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, about the phrase that, you know, the horrible phrase everyone always hears, which is write what you know. And, and I wanted to know what that phrase means to you and whether that's the same meaning necessarily that perhaps a publishing house might have of it. 
Yeah, I mean, write what you know. I mean, the danger of write what you know, I suppose, is that you end up just writing your own direct experience. And I think that can be a bit dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so part of this, I think write what part of this contains sort of philosophies I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of write what, what I know. I am interested in this idea, like I say, of 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 why how technology has sort of taken over and what a response might be. Um but also it doesn't mean you know I haven't lived in a in a desolated place in the countryside. I, I come from the Midlands and a bit country, a bit town. So it's not like it's a I've conveyed a place that I know intimately. Um there is this question, isn't there, that can you write characters from different walks yeah. of life, from different ethnicities? And I'm really interested in that. And I think, you know, my wife is mixed race. Uh, there's a mixed race character in the book, uh, Livia. Um, and so I'd like to think that when I expand the world a bit and people from different backgrounds come in, it won't be my background, but I'll try and find ways of of making sure I understand those those sides of things. I think if you only write precisely what you know and you're scared to write anything else, you're going to limit the world that you the, the world that you produce. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think sometimes it can be it, it's how you interpret the phrase, I suppose. But you know, writing what you know can be potentially quite a wide a wide thing if you're taking into account all the books you've read, everything like that, not just your own personal experiences. And I think sometimes it gets too people get funneled too down that that latter sort of explanation of, of what it means um, well I, I like the idea really actually i mean one of the, the, there's lots of little literary jokes in the book i mean not too many i mean i don't want people to think it's this sort of postmodern metafictional thing because it isn't but uh, there are little bits of other books in it you know one of the um the chapter titles is uh um, um what is it a morbid curiosity and bones or something which is a a, a cad file novel um the the town where they live is um near where they live is called Meriton, which is actually from Pride and Prejudice. Uh, and um, Livia is named after that. There's kind of a joke about a swim in a lake, which is to do with Pride <laughs> and Prejudice, um, that's in the book. So there are books in this, yeah. you know, Sh Sherlock yeah. Holmes is mentioned, you know, if this is a book that is very much celebrates the notion of detective books. I mean, one of the things that Jake, my detective, gets from his uncle is this library of thrillers. And in his, you know, his, his beautiful farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, he has 5,000, 6,000 books to read, which his uncle has given him. Now, that's a fantasy I think many, many of us can get on board with. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and what about what about uh, researching? You obviously said for the, the nonfiction books, much more research involved. But did you do research for this, like in terms of things like, I'm just thinking sort of police procedures and, and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, I, is that I, something that from reading all these books you, you maybe know already? I think you know a bit of it. Uh, I do think the the internet. This is again. This is the the other side of the argument. Yeah. You know, is that there are lots of things you can learn to do now. So I, I kind of learned how to build a sauna from scratch because people do do that. People do get the wood and they build what amounts to a shed and they put tar paper on it and the insulators and they put something in the middle and you can build your own sauna, which Jake does at one point. And so. I researched that. I, you know, there's YouTube videos. I had a look at some of the stuff. I, uh, um, and so I, actually, I think that there's stuff you can do um, um, using the internet. There's stuff you can do with experience in the sense of, you know, going around looking at different birds and plants and the so sounds they make. And so there's a bit of that as well, where some of the, I'm, I'm really keen on books that are tactile uh, in some respects. I've, I've always loved, always loved books with food in them, um, where even if it's just sort of offhand, there's a bit which is, 
I remember reading uh, Hemingway when I was a kid and the f- his first book, um, Fiesta, Sun Also Rises. Anyway, at one point there, they're in the mountains somewhere and they go fishing and he takes a bottle of wine, cheap bottle of wine. I remember he gets to a spring and he pushes it down at the back of the spring and then it comes out almost frozen with the sort of the chill of the spring and then they drink it from the bottle and the taste of this wine that is so cold and it sort of tastes a bit rusty. Yeah. And little moments like that I'm very fond of actually. And so the the bits of food, bits of drink and bits of, of tactileness are taken from from direct experience in in a way. I mean that that must play, you know, play back into that kind of right what you know idea of of it's, it's things that you've researched or you've experienced yourself and it's plucking little bits and even though it's you're not a wine expert or whatever but you've 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 done enough research or you've had a you've tried something yourself to be able to write with an authenticity about yeah it. it lends an authenticity that kind of draws yeah. even if it's a small thing it draws you into the exactly more, I yeah. well I, well i wonder whether actually the, the key is and look who knows whether this works for my book but i, I like to think it would do is it's not necessarily the whole sweep of it. It's these little moments where mm-hmm. you suddenly think, oh, yeah, that's... I, I often regard, when I remember books, I reread lots of books as well. Um, uh, it's I often focus back on individual moments in books, that it's not necessarily just the plotting, or the plotting is important. You often just recall the couple of moments here and there where there's either a sentence or there's a scene, or like I said, there's a meal or a taste or a sound that just rings very true and for whatever reason it chimes with something yeah. in your brain mm-hmm. and i think fiction at its best is, is a series of those moments really perhaps yeah and and obviously uh death under a little sky about to be out your first novel now you as we've established you've you've been published uh multiple times before but do you have a sense you know are you nervous about how it'll be received oh awful awful <laughs> awful i hate it um because also as you guys know it's a very long run-up yeah. So even yeah. though I'd written this thing, and it's quite weird, my book, because I, I'd written it more or less complete. So when the, they bought it and they got the second, they ordered the second one, the first one was more or less done. It was, you know, 85,000 mm. words. It was a thing. So, and that was, God knows, was it 18 months ago, a year? It was a very, very long yeah, time yeah. ago. <laughs> uh, and so all I've been doing is, is worrying about it since that period. And it's perhaps why I enjoyed the writing so much, because at least with the writing, it's just you and it's a cliche again, but it's definitely true. It's you and your imagination. You're just sitting there mm-hmm. and actually it doesn't matter really mm-hmm. anything other than are you feeling something? Are you achieving what you want to achieve? That bit's great. It's that moment where, so, you know, we're two weeks away from publication. You are starting to get a couple of reviews and people, you know, and it's not just reviews. It used to be just reviews in newspapers where you get four or five or none. But now it's, you know, everyone's a reviewer, yeah. which is lovely yeah. in lots of respects. You know, I think it's great. And the democratisation of this stuff, particularly for fiction, I think is is really good. But you do spend your time, you know, I was once told, don't ever look at Goodreads. I've already looked at Goodreads. <laughs> and someone else told me a good tip on Goodreads, uh, an, uh, an author I was judging something with. And uh, he said to me, um, if you... If you're if you're upset about Goodreads or worried about Goodreads, find the think of the book you think is the greatest book ever written. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah. 
and go to Goodreads and you'll see someone give it two stars and say, you know, Shakespeare, what was he really on about? (laughs) Yeah. There's a guy I follow on Twitter. um, I think it's Gabino Iglesias. He he writes kind of horror noir novels and he, um, he often posts one-star reviews of you know universally accepted fantastic novels and it's it's quite heartwarming to be like okay there's just idiots up there who just don't like Anything. objectionally great <laughs> yeah, stuff exactly. so it's, it's fine <laughs> yeah but the thing is i mean the thing they always say don't look at it and you shouldn't look at it and you can get i mean i i wasn't familiar with net galley that's the thing that yeah. i've come to, to see and actually there's so much lovely stuff there i've, I, I've had like 70 or 80 things on net galley and Quite a lot of them are very nice, but all I can think about, all I can think about <laughs> is someone who says, oh, it's a bit slow. Start was a bit slow. Start was a bit slow. And I was like, well, yeah, it was a bit slow, but I was trying to start a whole a whole series of books. It's quite a difficult thing to do. <laughs> and, and you mentioned there that, that you, you also judge, I think you're a judge on the Sunday Times Young Writer Award. Yeah. Um, is that something, you know, is it important in the in the publishing industry for writers to to offer support to these younger people and and offer a path through i suppose i think so and i think generally speaking i think writing is such at one level a heartbreaking kind of soul-searing occupation where yeah. you don't get much one of the things i think is so important is i think yeah supporting young writers i i i try and say yes to judging even though um it's a lot of hassle it's a lot of books and all of that because I think if you can find a book that hasn't perhaps been given the attention it deserves and give it a bit of a push, it's a great thing to do. And actually, I think even outside of judging, one of the things I love about crime, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but crime seems to have this very welcoming community. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Where, uh, and I feel this, and you know, again, one of the reasons this book exists is it's partially a love letter to the to the genre. It's basically saying there is an absolutely bottomless pit of amazing books out there in this genre. It, and this book is is exists because those books existed, and so I so I feel very um, sort of positive about other books and other writers. And I what I think I like I'm I'm really pleased about is that does seem to be out there that, that people want your book to succeed. They want they want people just want you know I think we all want books to succeed, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just want people to write books that get appreciated and people to read them and enjoy them, and that's what we all want. And it'd be lovely if it happens for us. And it'd be great if we, we we can be a success, but we also want the thing to succeed because at some part of us we we believe that there's something great there that that deserves to to generally succeed. Definitely. I mean, with all the all the changing, you know, kind of mentioned the way that the landscape's changed, and the technology's changed, and obviously social media is a huge part of that. And you know, in in, in your view, is it important for new writers coming up to have? some kind of presence online and, and and is that maybe more true for factual or non-fiction books where you have to be a kind of a already a kind of semi-expert yeah, yeah on, on a subject yeah. i don't really know the answer to this question i mean i think probably there is a correlation between being famous and selling books there must be mm-hmm. some form of correlation although i remember the new york times looked into that at one point and it wasn't quite as strong as you think it is so there are people with millions of followers on twitter who for example who don't sell millions of books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the, the notion of just being famous on social media helping, I think probably isn't there, though it might help a little bit. Um, I think the world goes through social media for rightly or wrongly. You know, in, I, I'd never done Instagram until this book came, is about to come out and people at HarperCollins said, I oh, want you to try Instagram. because so I'd done Twitter a lot. And I, I've, I, I, at the beginning, certainly I felt quite 
um, temperamentally connected to Twitter. I, I quite like people being mm. funny and you know the, the brevity of it. And I've and I've got a few followers on Twitter. And Twitter is very much I'm comfortable with. I know how Twitter works. I don't understand how Instagram works. I'm constantly baffled by Instagram now. I feel <laughs> I, I'm 42 years old and I feel like I'm sort of 70 year old person staring <laughs> puzzlement at their grandchild's phone. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm, not doing, I'm not doing TikTok. I'm just not doing TikTok. So I think probably the good thing about social media, I think for, for young writers is there is a community of people who yeah. want, to, to, want to, to, to like you and help you. And my, my experience is particularly with book side of social media, because I you know I work in the news business and news social media is awful. I mean, it's really mean yeah. and it's really aggressive and mm-hmm. Um, but books one I'd like to believe is a bit different to that and I think probably that advice is if you're in be part of a community if you're writing because it's a lonely old business and and whether social media will bring you riches whether it'll mean your book sells I've got no idea but I kind of feel there's probably something there particularly in fiction where people will club together a bit more yeah to to sort of to look after you and that that's quite a nice thing yeah that's true so I mean, uh, Death Under a Little Sky is out, as you say, in a couple of weeks, um, and you've already handed in uh, book two. I mean, what what is in the pipeline for you? Well, I've done, I've, I, I did a deal a couple of weeks ago. There's four. I've done a deal for four. So I, I, I sold two, wrote the second one, and then as we were just getting to the point of publication for the first one, they said, "Oh, we'd like two more." And I've written the first chapter. So there's four. Um, now, my this may never happen. The thing I love most in the world are giant series of books. Mm. And you can name virtually any, anything. I love John D. MacDonald, who's an old American guy from the 60s. You know, the Morse books. I'm reading one at the minute. Uh, Nicola Upson writes these detective novels uh, set uh, with, where the central character is Josephine Tay, who's a crime author from the 1930s. I love a series. Mm-hmm. My greatest ambition in life would be to have an omnibus. I love omnibus books. You know what I mean? When you get three in a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. three in one book, they're brilliant. You know, I just think they're so good. I would love to have one of them one day. I mean, I'm sure I won't do, but that's what. So the, the the dream would be that this works well enough that this is a thing I could write loads of. Yeah. Uh, if that doesn't happen, I'm definitely going to write. Well, I'm definitely going to publish four of them. And if they stop wanting to publish them, there's a very, very strong chance there's just me sitting there by myself <laughs> writing them for my wife. <laughs> and there'll be Jake, there'll be the Jake Jackson 11th book of the series. No one will ever see it but my wife. And um, so that's why I kind of feel at the minute. I, I, I just, like I said, just finished the third one. And I feel a bit bereft. I feel a bit sort of tingly in my hands thinking maybe I need to start thinking about another one. But I've got to I, fix this one up first. I, I know it is, it's, it's a sort of, Horrible. It can sound very pretentious, you know, that you you have to, you feel the need to write, you have to write and stuff. But it is true, I think, when you enjoy it, then it is, yeah, it is something that you just actually find yourself wanting to do when you've got those two hours when you're in the car at three a.m. like you are. Um, These sorts of things that it is just something that makes you happy. So that's that's why most writers do it. They don't actually set out to to make lots of money out of it. No, and why else would you do it? You can't do it unless you have to. No, because I, uh, I, right. I, I tell you, there are a couple of those cliches, like you said, I have to do it that annoys you, or, or the character spoke to me. That's yeah, always yeah, the great yeah, breathy yeah. thing that people say, and, and I'm not really buying any of that. But there is that compulsion. Because if you don't yeah. have that compulsion, there's plenty in life to stop you doing it. And at some point, you've got to just get over the hump of of that, haven't you? And maybe that's just because you feel you you have to do it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> 
what was the last book that you read? Uh, I'm currently, well, the last one I finished was Rex Stout's Black Orchids, which is a detective novel in the 1940s, I think. Huge in America. Nero Wolfe is the detective. I'm not sure it's that, that read well over here. They were massive in America. He sold millions and millions of copies. Uh, and what I'm fin- still reading at the minute is Nicola Upson, Nine Lessons, which is part of her Josephine Tay series. Brilliant. Yes. Um, what about the last film that you watched? Uh, this is this is not great. <laughs> I don't watch many films now. I think it was so. I think it was super bad. Oh, that's oh, a wow. great film. A classic. Yeah. So basically, I, I, I my film consumption now is purely nostalgia. <laughs> so basically, if it was kind of broad humour in the late nineteen nineties, I'm there basically with it. <laughs> Uh, and uh, what about last TV show that you watched or are watching? So I watch with my kids. Um, I go to bed at eight thirty at night, yeah. so I don't watch anything currently. <laughs> <laughs> so I watch stuff with my kids just before I go to bed, and we are watching How I Met Your Mother. All right, okay. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. A, a early two thousand, so I'm advancing <laughs> forward. Uh, uh, American TV sitcom. My kids really like it, so, and I, I like it as well. Excellent. Nice. And um, the very, very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. And um, I always say there's no right answer here apart from one of them. But we'll start off with uh, James Elroy or Lee Child. Oh, that's brutal. Uh, Lee Child has blurred my uh, death under little sky. I cannot, I cannot (laughs) go against that. So I'm going to go Lee Child. Um, TV or cinema? TV. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? I mean... I, mean, I know it's kind of an obvious if you could yeah. choose I suppose. If you, yeah exactly yeah, if yeah. i could choose i would be an early bird but not quite as painfully early as i, as I am <laughs> in the middle um music or no music when you're writing music classical music and i know i think philip pullman gets really angry about that in a sort he of, faintly pom- a lot of stuff i think yeah he, he, he's, he's in a faintly pompous way that it's not giving respect <laughs> enough to classical music but i've made it a sort of pavlovian thing so i listen to various classical uh, mixes you just get and that's the signal to my brain that i'm writing okay um and the last one real book or ebook real book yeah i i, I should have known with i mean the case behind behind, it was, yeah exactly. what, what if i'd asked you audiobook or ebook mm, i would probably say ebook but i really like the pace of reading i've got nothing mm. against audiobook. i think audiobooks are really brilliant developments i think Actually, you know, Death in a Little Sky has been read by a great actor. I think more people will get to it because of audiobooks. So I do like them, but I like controlling the pace of reading. And to me, that means my eyes and a page, even if it's an electronic page. Uh, that was an excellent chat. Really enjoyed that. And interesting, as he says, we've chatted about this in the past with people that, you know, you can go into any fantastically well-regarded novel and you go into Goodreads and there will be one sad person who's given it one star. Well, that's it, yeah. I mean, it. you know, they always say avoid your reviews and stuff, but that's what you've got to bear in mind But if you do get yeah. these these reviews on there. But, I, you know, I do see the sense in some that some authors have of just avoiding it entirely because yeah. it, what is it? Why is it worth it to, to, to yeah. put it's yourself an through that? If you see all those five yeah. stars, then as... As uh, Stig says, it's that one star one that sticks in your head. Yeah, well. exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I thought that was a really fascinating chat. Um, a really nice guy. And, you know, as I said at the start, 
obviously really a connoisseur of crime fiction. Um, so his debut novel is just out, Death Under a Little Sky, so do go and pick that one up. And as he said, there'll be many more coming in that series. And uh, next week, we've got uh, another debut author, um, but in a different genre, a speculative sort of thriller genre. Yeah, but then next week, we're chatting with Nicholas Binge, whose novel Ascension is out uh, in April. Uh, end as, of April, uh, End of April. And um, it is a fantastic book. It's a kind of weird fiction-y uh, sort of, annihilation type Yeah, vibes. I think they've pitched it as Interstellar meets The Martian, but it, it's definitely got a bit of annihilation, a bit of arrival in there as well. Yeah, I've read much. it. You know, I really enjoyed it. Um, and it, next week's episode has the bonus of being a video interview as oh, well, so you'll be able wonderful. to watch it as well and see... Uh, Nick uh, chatting see about it and fat sweaty face chatting <laughs> exactly well rather than that you can see Nick talking about it and talking about <laughs> the amazing uh, deal that he got for that book which which oh, yeah, is some story it's a lot of good to kind of publishing to. chat as well yeah. behind the scenes in there as well yeah so um, please do tune in for that one before we go as ever if you enjoyed the episode please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews are very, very welcome. <laughs> uh, and if you want to get in touch, you can always send us an email to the podcast at rightgear.co.uk or you can send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is uh, at UK page one. And of course, we are on Mastodon, which is writing.exchange forward slash at page one pod. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll speak to you next episode. See you later. <laughs>